Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello! And welcome again to the Hobcast. I've lost track of how many shows we've done. 73. Three. I think it's 73. Welcome to the show. 73 or maybe not. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you're very welcome to it. Uh, the Hopcast Book Show is presented by myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobbit Books. And we are UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Crime. Mysteries. Thrillers. And suspense. That was a bit more perfunctory to <laughs> this week. And uh, we have uh, our interview, key interview this week. We've actually got two. Two Hobekians are joining us we on do. the show. We went over to see Jonathan Peace, who launches his debut Hobek novel. Uh, um, Dirty Dirt- Little Secret. <laughs> it's a bit of a tongue twister when you're... <laughs> no, I just... Yeah, my brain caught me out there. Dirty Little Secret is out on Tuesday. But we're also hearing from Harry Fisher, who recently released Yes, I Killed Her. And uh, we have meaning to get him on the programme, but we were at Crime Fest the week it launched. So yeah, that, and that he, he, he's by. featured before, so he's done a little bit of a yeah, a little snippet of absolutely some, some further information about a brilliant book. But uh, from uh, from Sorrow's Hole, I was going to say, which is the second book yeah. of Jonathan's, is coming out with us not so distant future. Well, Jul- um, July the twelfth, and the interesting thing is, I get them mixed up in my head because we yeah. just pressed the print button oh, yeah. um, from Sorrow's Hold. So when I think of you know Jonathan Peace, I'm mm. thinking in that book because Dirty Little Secret, that sort of that part of the work mm. has, was completed a month or so ago. So you know, it's... yeah, and there's been proofing to do and all sorts of work. So I mean, we we are, yeah, I get I get it's a bit of a blur at the moment. Um, well, life's a bit of a blur for you at the moment, isn't it? It is a little bit, yeah. It is, it is, it really. <laughs> yeah, my brain's not functioning. Look, it's it. Well, be honest with you. When we record this, it's usually the morning. We're usually a bit sharper, but as it is, I have just watched an epic Monaco Grand Prix, which has kept me bolted to the sofa for about three hours it because has. of rain. Yeah, rain and accidents and I all know. sorts of things. Toby kept coming upstairs, and I said, "Has it finished?" No, <laughs> no, it was it was ludicrously long, um, and also in front of me, and I'm sort of slightly distracted because there's 30 seconds left of the championship playoff at Wembley, which could take Nottingham Forest, deservedly, I think, into the Premier League, which is a great thing for the Premier League because they are a fantastic historic club. But on the pitch is a young man from Manchester United, number 37 there, on the edge of the penalty area as we're watching it. His name is James Garner, and I think he's the best prospect that United have had in a very, very long time uh, as a midfielder. And I've been watching his progress all season. He's done amazingly because uh, this is a complete digression. But the fact is that Forrest were bottom of the table, well adrift after six matches. They've lost all their first six games or something like that. Or maybe they've drawn one. And they're now on the prospect of going to the Premier League, which is quite extraordinary. We're just uh, waiting for the final whistle. And if if you asked me to comment, I'd say it's the blue stripy white men against (laughs) the red men. Yeah. (laughs) 
And it looks like Hud, which I guess was Huddersfield, and Four, which I said was Fortum, which mm. is a village down the road from here. I know it's an yep. unlikely match. That, and but... you can see by the people dashing onto the pitch that uh, Nottingham Forest have indeed been promoted to the Premier League, which is extraordinary. There he is, James Garner, charging in front oh, of the fans. Oh, he's having a hug all. Yeah, cute. He's, a, he's a really great young man and an incredible talent. Oh, so, uh, I they think do look happy. You're going to hear a lot about him. He's got the sort of... Um, Dead ball delivery that David Beckham used to have. He's an amazing corner taker and free kick taker. So, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, I'm sure you were. He's not quite the same sort of uh, magazine looks, but there we go. Anyway, we'll we'll get on with the program. And uh, in terms of news this week, there isn't a lot. I mean, the Nibbies were this week. The yeah, National that's Book the Awards. big news. Yeah. And indeed, we go back to Manchester United. So there was a theme here, <laughs> which is that uh, your favourite uh, player, Malcolm Rutherford. Marcus Rashford, uh, one, one book of the year uh, for You Are the Champion, and or You Are you are a Champion, or whichever title it was. But anyway, the, the, the book that was encouraged was he co-wrote to try and encourage young boys to start reading. Did he wear a smart suit? I don't know if he went to the, the thing. I mean, you know, he's been sort of, he's had a rotten season. Ever since he became sort of... Uh, oh, men taking their tops off on the telly, as we Yeah, record. that's Jed Spence with <laughs> quite the most pronounced 25-pack um, I've ever oh, seen in my nice, life. Oh, very nice, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't too bad, was he? Uh, even I could admire that. Um, he's a great player too. Anyway, the, the, the fact is that um, yeah, Malcolm Rutherford or Marcus Rashford <laughs> has had a rotten season uh, for various reasons, but has been uh, a remarkable influence culturally. Uh, and obviously challenged the government to provide school meals uh, replacements during the pandemic when kids weren't getting hot meals at school because they weren't there. So lots of, um, you know, what do they say? What's the, the current phrase? Props. Props, so, what's that I, mean? I have no idea, but anyway, that's what the kids say. Props to uh, Malcolm Rutherford for, for winning Book of the Year. Uh, in terms of the categories that we concern ourselves with, crime, it went to Ian Rankin. And of course, we well done, Ian. Well, yeah, we interviewed him ahead of the release of the Dark Remains, which he picked up as William McIlvanny's sort of uh, fifty-page notes and bits and bobs uh, for a manuscript that he didn't finish before he died. And um, he went back and reworked those notes, turned it into a novel mm. with the you know at the behest of the the family. And uh, it was a remarkable. He was actually really pleased. You could tell by the social media things that, you know, it really meant a lot to him. Yeah, he's quite humble, isn't he? He is actually, yeah, in, in fairness. Uh, but to actually win it, you know, uh, trying to synthesise the voice of another author, we knew, I mean, when we spoke to him, it was such a massive challenge for him, but he did a great job. I think that's probably why he felt particularly yeah, pleased. So. Because it, it was a challenge, it was different, something he hadn't tried before and... And he, he nailed it, as you'd say. Yeah. I mean, you know, amongst the other nominees were, were Janice Hallett for The Appeal and uh, Val McDermott for 1979. Do you think, you know, when they see each other at Harrogate, that, you know, there'll be a sort of in-your-face Val? I beat you to the... No. The, the, no, I don't suppose there is. Only in a friendly way. Yeah, interesting, They'll probably say, better buy me a drink, Ian, because you won. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that was the nibbies, and... Um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not for the likes of us. The other one I was going to mention was the Audiobook Award went to uh, a Cresta Cowell book, but it was narrated by a, a little-known up-and-coming talent called David Tennant. David David Tennant? No, no idea. No idea, no, no. I'm sure he'll do well. Um, I mean, this is one of the issues when you're a British narrator is the fact that you have the world's best actors uh, also narrating books and... Um, 
yeah, I, I don't expect to see my name on there in any, any Oh, great don't hurry. say that. Don't no, or maybe there, there must be somewhere I can go and get myself in. There, there are going to be levels of awards, I think, that you can start off with. But Staffordshire's number as, one narrator. As, as Toby said to me yesterday, <laughs> so I ran the park run yesterday, and I, uh, the only people who came after me was a uh, lady on crutches, the lady on crutches' friend, um, someone who was about 90, and the tail walkers, who were the people who just make sure nobody's died mm. on the way. And I said to Toby, <laughs> I said, I, I, you know, I play tennis three times a week. I've done lots of park runs. Will I ever get any faster? And he said, Mother, that's not the attitude. If you have that attitude, you'll never get faster. Well, as we've discovered, you are running in walking boots, basically. <laughs> so, um, you know, that can't be helping. So one, at some point in the future... I shall get you a proper pair of uh, of trainers for, for your park runs, and that will, will, I think, probably take two or three minutes off your time. Well, I'd be like Billy Wiz then. Well, it did. I mean, when I bought your eldest, Luke, uh, a pair of decent trainers for his birthday, he took four minutes off his personal best. Yeah, he's pretty good now. He is really good now. Yeah, she goes, sits in the car, has a drink, and waits for me to <laughs> trundle yeah. along. Okay, well, that's pretty impressive. I mean, I, I'm in no shape to do the 5K, but I am in better shape than I have been in years the last month because of the tennis thing and by all the preparation and work we've put in, putting in between us to get fit around the court because it doesn't matter how well you swing a racket. If you don't get near the ball, you can't hit it. And um, so that's my focus at the minute, and it's been brilliant. But anyway, we, we've we'll been talk- on the speed bike. Is it a speed bike? Was uh, it no, it's a spin bike. Spin bike. Yeah, I bought that in the winter when I was warned about my diabetes getting out of control, and I never used it, but now I love it. So. And me. I watched Glow Up while cycling the other night. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah, no, we're, we're already in the sort of back section of the programme, so we ought to do some more news yeah, before we, uh, we, we jabber. We digress yet again. And, and, and I ought to warn you that the uh, interview coming up with Jonathan Peace was a big jabathon from me. I have to say, I, I digressed on every subject. I mean, you know, if you think we we ramble, this one was off the scale. Yeah, but it was all relevant. It really it was. was. Yeah, it was. It was, relevant. it was relevant. It was relevant. I just, you know, look, it was great to meet him and we had a great sort of rapport, but we'll talk about him in a minute. Yes. Okay, what other story have you found? Well, there were, there were a couple of things. Um, Tom Daly is going to publish a knitting guide, which I love. Yeah. I like it when athletic people do something sort of itty bitty like so this this is inspired by the fact that when he was at the olympics and he was um in the crowd in tokyo the camera caught him crocheting (laughs) Um, brilliant yeah and I, i presume he was making baby clothes or whatever because he and his husband have you know adopted a kid or whatever they've done so um or had a you know someone bear their kid for them but anyway that was what he was doing so that became a big meme and, and, and big social media thing across the world. So it'll do very well. Oh, yeah, I it, think so. But and you see, Tom Daly's one of those branded athletes in the sense in the UK where – and for those outside the UK who don't know who he is, he, he's been followed for years and years and years in the UK because he emerged as, I think, 11 or a 12-year-old onto the world diving scene and was a remarkable talent from a very young age. In fact, you know, if you look at the Chinese, they're very young as well when the, you know, they start. But for, for in the UK, it was unheard of for us to have a good diver, um, you know, and uh, he he really was remarkable. The other thing that made made him stand out, well, I mean, he was very. <laughs> this is the wrong way to put it, but he was a pretty boy. So the teenage girls loved him, and then of course, subsequently, he came out and. Uh, all that sort of stuff but the other thing was his dad was dying 
all the way through that initial phase of his fame. And so his dad was able to go to, I think, one and maybe even possibly two Olympics to watch his son uh, represent Great Britain. But uh, that was the other element of it. So he has been a celebrity for uh, uh, over 10 years, maybe mm. maybe th- three Olympics worth of, of celebrity. Um, and he's now in his 20s. And as I say, he's a father and uh, he's married to a... To a um, and a guy, he, I think he's he's a screenwriter. I think American screenwriter. Anyway, the uh, so there'll be a lot of interest around this book without question. I want Djokovic to do a yoga book too. Novak Djokovic. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's very bendy, isn't he? Yeah, Novak Djokovic. Okay, we're really digressing into sport, and we um, <laughs> we were watching him the other night because it's the French Open, as many of you will be aware at the moment. And, and um, to watch it, you, I've got uh, found. Um, a way to watch it anyway. And um, so Djokovic is famous for his flexibility. I mean, he, he has taken uh, the thing about being flexible and yoga and, and changing his diet and all that sort of thing. And he's now in his mid-30s. He was 35 last week. And he is one Grand Slam title away from being the most successful player of all time. And probably the most complete player, because although everyone loves Federer, he hasn't really won much recently. Nadal always wins. Oh, there's Stuart Broad. He's an England bowler. Getting very excited. Whereas I'm watching the cat watch her, uh, <laughs> washing her lady garden. No, no. I mean, so seriously, um, with Djokovic, he, you know, he's dominated the Australian Open. But, you know, uh, Nadal is going for his 14th French Open title out of the 21 titles he's won. So, you know, while he's won everywhere... He's only run one Wimbledon once, whereas Djokovic has won everywhere recently and almost won uh, the Grand Slam within a year, which is, you know, frankly unheard of. Mm. He, he was just, a, you know, he got to the final of the US Open and lost it. Uh, anyway, he's very bendy. Yes, uh, he, and that, so he's my new hero is what I was trying to say, because I'm quite bendy, but I need to sort of make myself a bit more bendy now. I'm his core strength is amazing, and the ability to get around the court and just play one more shot from the most unlikely positions is, <laughs> is one of He's also a very conflicted character. He refuses to have a vaccination against COVID, which has oh, brought yeah. him trouble so he can that play in Australia. News. He also held a tournament at the height of COVID um, with partying afterwards in his home, you know, in, in Serbia. And um, as a consequence of that, half a dozen players went down with COVID, including himself and his wife. So it was um, ill-advised. And there are various rumours that circulate around uh, Djokovic and his private life. But I'm saying no more than that because I don't want to get sued. But um, as we have a, a, a hot mind to the BBC tennis correspondent, <laughs> Russell Fuller, I get to hear this stuff. Oh, you have to tell me about that later because that's yeah, intriguing. That's but definitely, anyway. definitely an off-air <laughs> comment. Um, I think things are, are fine at the minute. Anyway, uh, one more Yeah, story. so um, this was a comment article in the bookseller. I like those because they're a bit more chatty. Um, about women over 45, they love books. But mm. the book trade, the traditional book trade, are not really um, giving them the respect that they deserve and therefore not making the most of the opportunities of women over 45%. Yeah. So this is written by uh, Harriet Evans, who's a former editor. She's also a published author herself. Yeah. And she went to a literary festival. I'm guessing it was possibly Hay, because that was last week, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, and one of the panellists, she was at a panel, and one of the panellists uh, turned to a journalist who'd just written a novel and said, you're writing for a mum's net audience with this book, aren't you? And she's saying that, you know, that was quite a dismissive comment, oh, yeah. as in that's, the mum's net audience. snobbery. Well, you'd expect that at Hay, wouldn't you? In a way. Yeah. 
But I think what she's saying is, you know, it's unfair to pigeonhole women of that uh, demographic as they just read romance, they just read crime, um, they just read light fiction. And in fact, no, they don't. Yes, they are reading to escape um, quite mm. busy lives. You mm -hmm. know, they're often juggling work and teenage children or um, ageing parents as well. So they're reading a lot and they are the people who buy the books. They're the ones who go to festivals and buy the hardbacks and get signed copies to give to the relatives and she's saying you know and also they're, they're not they're all sort of all over the country they're not just in the places where the publishers are based and she said when she was a publisher she never went to any events in Staffordshire or Cheshire or no you know it was all sort of London centric and well there's a metropolitan elite you run publishing there's no question about that and we felt this when we've gone to events hmm we definitely felt it. Oh, what Staffordshire has a publisher? You know that kind of attitude. Oh, I don't. I don't I'm not familiar with Staffordshire. Where is it? Um, <laughs> well, I, I and don't you know, wanna... we, and we never. I mean, when we describe where we are, we never mention our proximity to Stoke. Never. Well, we're not really close to Stoke. Well, we're not that far from Stoke. But if you think about the, you know, uh, we're just a four junctions up from wherever in Birmingham or something on the M6. Oh yes, I might have passed by when I was going to the lakes. You know, it's that kind of kind of attitude you get. Um, well, the best one I had the other—I can't remember who said it—but they said Stafford is somewhere you you go through. <laughs> you just you see it on the well, M6, like you say, well, like like one's um, you know uh, sort of lower bowel. <laughs> But not, I suppose I'll say that the train station, it's actually quite a major junction, isn't it? Stafford? It is, it is really, yeah. I mean, okay, it's, it's dwarfed by the importance of crew, but nonetheless, Stafford is on the West Coast main line and has amazing range of services to all sorts of places. So it's not a bad place to be, but it, it is very hard to pitch in, into actually getting people's minds where we are. And maybe that's a that's a good thing. I'm quite proud of the fact. That, I mean, look, I've lived every which way, and you know, obviously, I'm very proud of my Cambridge background, which I bang on about in the next interview we we do. But um, <laughs> you know, and I've lived uh, and I've, I've worked at the BBC in London, and then obviously moved to Salford and lived in the north, and was very proud to be for best part of a decade living in the north, mm. uh, northwest, and uh, you know, converted, I suppose, to being a Peak District dweller. Um, yeah, well, that's. Wishful thinking was really Stockport, but it was um, it was wonderful. Um, but Stafford is, is 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 a battle to try and describe <laughs> what it's got to offer. Because let's be honest, it, it you know it is a it's an epitome of the high street that that you know it's one of those UK places where your high street has to a large extent died completely. Completely, there's nowhere decent. There's hardly anywhere to eat, let alone anywhere decent to eat in the whole town no it's it's very depressing because i grew up here and it wasn't like that when i was growing up at all you know i actually felt quite proud to be from stafford when i went to university then i would argue it's difficult to find a decent pub anywhere within 20 miles of where we live um, truthfully you know even though the, it's a it's a center for brewing in stone and um and sort of burton's not very far away in utoxter and places like that but the pubs are, are, are pretty bad um, I don't want to run it down too no. much, but the countryside is. If it was the home counties, everyone would rave about Staffordshire. <laughs> of course they would. Yeah. Gentle, it's bucolic. It's looking beautiful at the moment. So green, and rolling hills, and wonderful lanes to cycle around. I mean, you know, the mammals of Surrey would absolutely adore it here. <laughs> they would. 
Anyway, again, we're digressing. We're really on jabber mode. I know, we're talking about... The... But anyway, you think... Yeah, I mean, they're saying that, the, you know, there is a certain type of commercial fiction which the publishing industry is embarrassed about. Yeah. You know? And, and the, let's be honest, the imprints that provide that, that fiction for that over 45 women's market who want escapism is what funds the people going in for the booker and stuff like that. Yeah, but I think what she's also saying is they're not just reading what the traditional publishers think they're reading. Yes, they are reading that uh, mm-hmm. romance and contemporary women's fiction. But they're, they're, and, but they're, but they're, they're also reading the Booker Prize nominees and, and, and you know, they're a bit more adventurous. Oh, I think so. For. I think they're the bedrock of, of all publishing. And, that, um, you know, without wishing to be, you know, too obvious, we, we do, you know, our target reader, when we target adverts, mm. tends to be that demographic yeah especially in the I uk rarely so, target under 45 no well i mean adverts. you know to be honest it's you know not many of our books w- would have that um immediate appeal no. because they're looking for something different and you know that's where the urban fantasy writers are, are, are cleaning up and you know people who write fantasy in terms of games and thrones and all that stuff that people have grown up some you know there's a demographic who want dystopian fiction in mm. that age group and all that sort of thing and they want fiction that reflects their lives as well and it's completely different from the generation that we're part of and many of our authors are part of or indeed later you know earlier generations it just you know it's very hard for for us to 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 break into that demographic we we will do it at one point and and i you know the last week or so we've been thinking about ideas of how we could do that how we could find authors who speak for that generation so uh, and part of that is going to start frankly uh, in two weeks' time, when I go to Exeter, well, when we both go to Exeter again, um, we're going to do something. I, I do, well, I think the thing to start off with is asking people, what do you want to read? People of that demographic, yeah, just asking absolutely. them. No, well, that's what we're going to uh, do some market research while yeah. we're there. Anyway, we ought to get to our interview. Um, nothing else to cover on news? I mean, we've got some Hobeck stuff we can talk about after our yeah, interview. Yeah, I think that, that was the, the things that caught my eye. I mean, there, there was the other, um, I think it's The Diary of a Wimpy Kid, and it, um, the 17th one coming out. And I'm thinking, well, my boys loved that, but they're all grown up now. <laughs> yeah, so did mine, actually. Yeah, James was reading it until he was about 13, I think. He won't thank me for saying it, but he, he's still got them on his shelves, I think. Anyway, uh, let's get to our feature interview. Now, we went over to, uh, well, I couldn't decide where we were, whether we were in Nottinghamshire or Derbyshire. It seemed to be at the sort of conference. We were by the River Trent. It, was, can, far, it was lovely. We went to a pub called the Trent Lock, and we went to meet our wonderful new signing, Jonathan Peace, whose first Hobeck novel is out this week. Dirty Little Secret. It's all set in his original hometown of Osset in West Yorkshire. Features Louise Miller, who is a detective constable who returns home having had some difficult experiences learning her, the, the trade of policing in Manchester. But uh, it's not necessarily the warmest welcome that she gets when she gets to Osset. And then, of course, she stumbles on, well, the inciting incident is a body in a phone box. We'll say no more than that. If you've seen the cover, you know what we mean. But uh, it is a brilliant book, and it was a fantastic interview and an opportunity to meet Jonathan for the first time. So you really, you're almost eavesdropping on us meeting one yeah. of our authors for the first time, and it, it, it was a real pleasure to see him. I do love coming out on a summer's afternoon for a chat. 
Don't you, Rebecca? Uh, yes, I do, and we, we seem to have somebody with us. We do, we do. We're absolutely thrilled to be here in person with Jonathan Peace on release week of Dirty Little Secret. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's really good to actually finally meet you both. <laughs> you too. Is this your local we're in? It's one of them, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we train lock. It's brilliant. Um, you love power stations, don't you? I do, because Rugeley, Rugeley, which is not far from where we live, um, was a lovely power station. And also, I used to live near Didcot, of course, which an iron bridge. Yeah, so <laughs> over, your, over my shoulder. <gasps> really? Yeah, you should be able to see some cooling towers, I think. Or at least I saw them somewhere over there. Uh, yeah. there's, there's quite a bit of treeage, but perhaps behind the treeage. Yeah, no, no, there is a, trust me, there is a big power station. Can we go there. before we go home? Of course, of course, we'll walk the canal and, and anyway. We're here to, to finally meet Jonathan, so this is uh, our first opportunity to see you. We've been obviously working together for a few months now since yep. we, we signed you. Um, how do you feel, I mean, this is... I, like many of the authors we've spoken to, this has been this this is the fulfilment of a considerable dream, isn't it, to have a published book? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely been a long time coming. Um, I mean, I'm literally just looking at the book on the <laughs> on the table. I still can't believe it's actually that. That is your book. <laughs> yeah, um, I've 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 wanted to to have a, a, a published book for for many years. Um, tried many different routes. Um, some bit secure Securitas. that's the word yeah Yeah. Um, tried different avenues went down a few paths of writing different things when it didn't seem to be working tried screenwriting for a while and then came back to writing books and here we are here we are indeed well I mean when we received your submission which was part of the September avalanche I think (laughs) when we opened we opened the doors for a month and uh, we're still working through it now. We, so. we really right. are. Well, there are still some full manuscripts we haven't read yet. No, that's right. And we're, well. feeling, we're increasing guilt. But um, I loved your submission. You loved the yeah, submission. Yeah. We just thought, yeah, we, we wanted to publish this. So we're delighted to not only be bringing out Dirty Little Secret, but very soon from Sorrow's Hold as well. I know. Yeah, if we'd done too. this podcast next week, we might have had books of that as well because we're about to print them so it's a shame really we we just you know not quite but t- t- tell us I mean about the about the books I mean in, in terms of first of all who we're dealing with in terms of your principal character here in Louise Miller yeah um, well Louise um, first of all it's in 1987 yes uh, in this book um, Louise um She's a police, well, she's a new um, detective constable um, and she's previously been working down in Manchester, that's where she went for her training, and she's come back home, back to Osset in West Yorkshire, which is her hometown. Um, As the book starts, it's her who discovers a, a body in a phone box and... That's where that's where we begin. Yeah, that's the inciting incident. I would like to know though, why nineteen eighty seven? What made you start what what made yeah. you set in that time period? There, there are two reasons. The first one, I didn't want to have to write a um, in bunny quotes pandemic book. Um, mm. I wanted to get rid of all of that straight mm. away. Um, I also didn't want it to be 
one of these books where it, the, the investigation is done via computer. So it's, everything can be researched very, very quickly. People can be contacted nearly immediately via mm. instant messages or emails or phones mm. or, or whatever. Um, and then the, the main reason really is I'm, I'm an 80s nerd. I love <laughs> everything about the 80s. I have hair to metal. say, I've noticed that. Hair so metal, really. Fo- yeah. Following you on um, you know, Twitter and Facebook, I've noticed that, that you are an 80s nerd. Yeah, 80s movies, should... 80s music. <laughs> That, that, that's it. It drives but, my wife crazy. But when you submitted, you see, that was the thing that attracted me to your submission because we get lots of police procedurals, don't we? We do, yeah. And lots of sort of potential for series. But the fact that yours was set in 1987, which I remember very well because I was, what, 15 years old now, yep. I thought, ooh, this is interesting because it's historic, yeah. kind of. Yeah. It is considered you, historic. You, did bathe, you bathed in the nostalgia of it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. When you read the submission. Yeah. Yeah, you, we used to have so conversations I think that, about that's, it. It's, it I hate to use this phrase USP, <laughs> but it really is. It was for me. That's what you know got me to want to read more but initially. I've got to ask because Louise discovers this body. She's on a on a run uh, in Inosset. She's listening to Huey Lewis and the News. I, I find that. Yeah. I find that. Is that one of your bands? That's, that's, that's one of my all-time favourite bands. Really. Yep. Yeah, she's listening to one of the cassettes I've got. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Because I, 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 always had a little bit of a problem with. I was trying to be cool for school, and I was into '60s stuff, and a lot of '80s stuff. Like apart from Prince, uh, <laughs> apart from Prince and Smith. the Smiths, I really wasn't into popular. You know the stuff that would have been on a now album, yeah. now eighty seven, which presumably Huey was. It wouldn't yeah. have been. It would have been now one probably. No. Now two, something like that. Now isn't three. It? Now actually. three actually. Yeah. Yeah, he's done his research. You're right. No, I think they started I actually, in eighty five. I have they? now three and four double yeah. cassette. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, it's got Prince on there. It's got it does. Madonna. Yeah. Um, I can't think of else. Actually, I, there like are a, quite a few bands that I did like, but I mean, it's just, I'm just, you know, I I found that surprising, but. You know, I respect your decision. Yeah, why wouldn't Louise <laughs> listen to Huey Lewis? I, I don't. I think that's 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 okay because my middle son, um, he really likes Huey Lewis and News. He's, he's what, sixteen years old, so he wasn't even alive then. But he's got good taste. <laughs> I'll tell him that. <laughs> he's a good lad. He's a good lad. Um, what sets this book apart? From you know, there are many things that set this book apart, and and you know, such believable characters. Everybody. There's no ciphers in this in, the, in your books. They've all got great, like, you know. They're so when you read the dialogue, you know these people very quickly. I think that's one of your great gifts is that you just capture them. That's, that's, that's you know the snouts in the pub, in yeah. the carps. Oh yes, I, yeah. Um, you know they've all got informants, and you know there's there's a lot of of people from from disadvantaged backgrounds. Should we put it that way? With with, yeah. with drug issues, alcohol issues, uh, the sort of dare I say it, the the, the the sort of people who until Jeremy Kyle finished would have wa- you know yeah. washed up on on that set. Um, but they're all extremely well drawn and empathetically done as well i mean you know you I see hope so. yeah because yeah. i think you capture the way that they they um you know they're not they're not people you pity um they have their own self-respect in their own way and i think you bring that through the, brilliantly. The, the people who you know they have their own lives that you know they get up in the morning just like anybody else they don't expect 
what happens to them to happen to them through the through the course of the day and um, until I think Louise comes along they don't get the same kind of respect as other people do um, the, the, the several characters I think that you're referring to mm. drift in and out yeah. um, throughout the book and throughout um, without giving anything away future books yes um, and they, they may or may not play bigger roles in, again in future books um, but I wanted them like you say to, to have that grounded reality to them and, and, and be you know as they are just people yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, you know, I've got friends who... They reminded me of some of my friends when I lived in Shrewsbury. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they do seem like very real people. They're not characters. Yeah. No, they're, I mean, they're not They're not ciphers. They're not They're not stereotypes either. And, no. And, you know, of course, they, they other books will have characters like this, you know, or at least people with those sort of backgrounds. But I think you've really captured the... the they, as you say, they get up in the morning and they're just fighting to survive the day. And they'll do it yeah. whichever way. And they're, they're either vulnerable or cynical or hard-bitten or whatever it might be. Their life hasn't treated them well. But I think the strength of the novel is you've got great central characters. But when, you, when your peripheral ones, the ones that uh, perhaps hold the information that drives the next bit of the plot forward, um, are so vivid, it's, that's that's different level. So that's what really attracted me. To your, to your work. Good to, good to know. So I'm blowing smoke up <laughs> 1980s posterior. But no, I mean, no, seriously, I mean, that, that's, why, that's why I would say to people, you know, who, who have the opportunity this week to get hold of your book, to, to get into it, because, you know, there's a whole, you know, it's the world that you've created here is full of people having to compromise and put up with things that aren't right, but you know sometimes you've got to make decisions based on you know if you want to get you can't be absolutist about everything you know uh, louise is having to compromise with she's working with people there's a strong uh, line of misogyny in this in the sense yeah. that it's an 80s cop shop with uh one or two coppers who are approaching their retirement age with values they picked up in the 50s and 60s presumably or 70s yeah definitely yeah um and the sort of you know, and we're talking about society in the seventies that allowed "Love Thy Neighbour" on the telly, yeah. and mind your language, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's she's up against that, and quite apart from that, um, there's her sexuality as well, which is a different, you know, something that again, she's having to hide. Yep, yep. It's um, she's fighting a lot of battles on a different, a lot of different fronts, um, and I, I thought that would make. I thought that would, that would make the story stand out a little bit more mm. in the fact that it wasn't going to be just a straight A, B, C police procedural. Um, but I wanted there to be a bit more, I'll say, depth to it. Yeah. I, I don't mean that to disparage any other, any other books or anything. No, but, no, no. Um, I just wanted it so that, yes, there's a crime that's been investigated and, and which becomes... A couple of crimes which have been investigated, um, but you're, you're also getting a lot more about the society that everybody was living in at the time and, and the choices that everybody were having was having to make. Yeah. Um, so that things weren't just black and white. 
although a lot of people treated things as black and white and a lot of people were treated, you're either this or you're that. Yes. Um, and that happens to Louise, it happens um, to Elizabeth Hines. Yes. Who's um, her sort of basically her partner. Partner, yeah, sidekick. Um, you know, that, I love, I, lo- I mean, this is not spoilers, but, you know, there is a... There's a great dynamic between them in the first book, but then I love how, you know, that dynamic is challenged in the next one. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's it's very easy. I mean, a lot of books start off, or series start off, with the uh, the grudging respect earned at the end for protagonist and, and sidekick, you know, who didn't get on to start with, and they, they're fine at the end. And then that relationship's always set in stone. They, mm-hmm. You know, they're a duo, and they don't let each other down, whatever. But that's not the case with how you're developing the series. I love that. But that's more like real life, isn't it? So, Yeah, I, I, again, what, before I started writing Dirty Little Secret, because I'd never written a crime novel before mm. or any crime stories before, so I read a lot of Ian Rankin, um, a lot of Lynn Anderson, a couple of Peter James books, I've got the rest to go through. Yeah. Um, Michael Connolly. Who, yeah. Um, I read... Um, the Black Echo is first one, um, and I looked at how they structure their stories and how they develop their characters over series, um, and I tried to utilise some aspects of that in mm-hmm. my series. And what I did before I started writing the book was I, I planned an overriding story arc to cover several books. Yeah, um, a very detailed nine book story arc with the potential then for further books so I could then seed in different elements of the, the characters throughout the books and tie it into the themes of what each book will be about yeah so for example third little secret is um, is, is basically about again it's not really a spoiler it's, a, it's about um, family um, family abuse yeah um the next book from Sorrow's Hold is about teen suicide. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, incredibly powerful. And it, it, like I say, it, the aspects of people's characters had to tie in then to those themes. Mm. Um, the theme of the third book, which I'm just writing now, is about um, uh, race and, and hate crimes. So those elements are being mm. brought mm-hmm. into everybody's characters and these are all quite contemporary issues as well even though it's historic um but that's one of the great values isn't it of 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 setting that in in a in a context of in a way you can challenge the issues with the safety of the distance of time if 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 that isn't too glib there is a there is a bit of distance of time in in one aspect of that Mm. but each of these, I mean, for example, the, the, the sexism and misogyny, which will continue throughout all the books, yeah. because that just hasn't gone away. Mm. You know, that is as prevalent today. Yeah, I mean, it's, if, it was in the news recently. So, um, than than it was back in, in in the you know back in the eighties, because really, getting on my soapbox, we as society by now should know better. 
unfortunately we don't. No, it was in the news recently, wasn't it, about police investigations within the police of um, misogyny. I can't say that misogyny. word. Misogyny. <laughs> mm. so, yeah. no, no, you know, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, uh, it, I, I often refer to it on this podcast about my experiences of, of reporting police stories. You know, some of the some quite big crime cases that became nationally known uh, when I was a reporter in, in the Brighton area in Sussex in the, in the 90s and the sort of prevalent behaviour of the police at that time, you know, the senior cops that I would go and interview and stuff like mm-hmm. that, you know, it's absolutely, yeah. it was, you know, it was a force that was riddled with this stuff and, you know, it, uh, uh, that comes through and, and using the 80s is, is a good example. That was, I mean, that's the time when I first started working. Um, you know, okay, I'm still, you know, I'm still studying, but I was doing Saturday jobs or summer jobs, and I worked on buses uh, in 1988 onwards right. on on open top buses around Cambridge. Doing, I was the guide, and I'd have my drivers. The sexism of the drivers was extraordinary. Yeah, um, and it was all laughed off as carry on kind of japes, but the fact yeah. that the the one, you know, they were nice guys. Don't get me wrong, but they used to sort of creep up on the office girls and sort of give them a squeeze in bits of their bodies and stuff like that. Mm. Ankles? Yeah, sadly not the ankles, <laughs> no. I don't think they could bend down that far. They're getting on a bit. Um, but then, you see, it was a company where all the drivers had been rusticated out of the, no- the, the local bus companies for various things. They'd been on the fiddle or whatever it was. And so then we picked up whoever we could get to drive buses with, an HG- with a PSV licence would come on so they all had these quirks <laughs> I, had, I had one driver who was a lovely bloke I really really liked him he was it was Sheffield from Sheffield he used to run a he was running a troop of, of, of mud wrestling women taking around the nightclubs and that was his <laughs> winter job and then the summer he came and drove yeah. guide buses or he went and did the coach tours and uh, you know the sort of hair raising stories that he'd come up with but you know it was like uh, the sort of he would he had the sort of lingo I suppose when whenever a, uh, a woman got on board, he would give it all the all the sort of northern blather, mm-hmm. um, or I'll look after you, you know that sort of thing. Yeah. And it was like you wouldn't get away with that with the generations that are coming through now. No, you just couldn't, you couldn't no, even say no. that. No, not at all. No, and <laughs> and part, you know, I'm I. This is I mean we should be talking about the book, but personally, I have a real issue sitting in between those two generations. Um, having been sometimes appalled by the sort of things I was witnessing as an 18-year-old and saying I'd never do that, but at mm-hmm. the same time. Um, and now where there's an absolutist culture where you cannot d- possibly stray and it's for someone else to judge whether, you, you know, your intentions. Yeah. And, and, and it's a very difficult thing to sit in the middle of because you could see that, you know, sometimes whatever went on was genuinely, yeah, it was probably past the mark but it was still funny is that yeah. awful you know <laughs> yeah do you see what I mean and it's it's like adding that in, adding that, that element into the story yeah um, I felt raised the it raised the stakes for her as a, as a character yeah in the again like, like I said earlier she, she's having to, to battle on loads of different fronts um, as well as obviously do her job mm. um, and it allowed me then as well to put a little bit of commentary in and yeah yeah I mean you know you want it's amazing how many manuscripts will come through where there's not enough challenge 
there's a there is a murder and someone's going to solve it. But for the characters, you need to put them through the ringer. You need to give them things to fight against. But you also need yeah. to get people to think, and I think that's what you're, you're yeah, doing uh, as well. You're, yeah. make, you're getting the readers to think, wow, it was like this then, and wow, things have changed, but thing, not everything has changed. You're getting them to sort of, you know, look at things from a different perspective yeah. slightly. Yeah, a prism of your, of your stories. Um, another aspect of what I really like is the fact that... Um, she's having to figure out because she's come home there's an element of a stigma of coming back oh, didn't make it Manchester kind of approach is it just yeah. that you say that? because I get that, when people say are you from around here? and I say well I grew up in, I was brought up in Stafford and I've come back you yeah. see the look yeah. like oh, you failed then <laughs> yeah. but that's, that's, that's another theme that, that, that resonates through the books in, in the sense of uh, it reminds me of um, your namesake, David Peace, uh, and the Red Riding trilogy. And that first story, set in 1974, is when a, they call him Scoop, and he's mm-hmm. he's the you know the Andrew Garfield character in the um, in the Channel Four version of it. He's come back having worked at a national newspaper, and he's back on the Yorkshire Post on the crime beat, and everyone regards him as a failure because he was the big boots who decided to leave Yorkshire. And, uh, and go to London and try it with whichever tabloid he was working for, and it didn't. He didn't succeed. And there's an element of that with with Louise coming back to her hometown, yeah. going. <laughs> yeah, why have you come? Why are you here? Why have you come back to to Osset? <laughs> yeah, surely and... Manchester's more exciting than Osset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I had obviously had to go back to to Osset because that was that was my hometown. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, 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 I and it, and it comes through. I mean, you really know that community, and, and, and you know, it's difficult. I think sometimes for, um, I think all authors struggle with this, but I think you've you've got on top of this really well. Is you get a feeling for the geography of the place without having to spell it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's um, a good point. Yeah, again, I wanted, I didn't want it to be somebody going, well, you go down this road and then you go over here and you go down this bit and then there's that, if you go where the, the, the church is and mm. you go left here. I, I want to just have a feeling for the place. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yes, there are a few a few elements to, you know, the description of the, the, the place, but without going into clinical detail. Yeah. And I think that, in a sense, you, you establish... Uh, let's put it this way. In my mind, I've got three or four landmarks from the first book, which are sort of my compass points. So the Carp's Pub is absolutely central <laughs> yep. to everything that goes on. Yep. There's the cop shop itself. There's the p- telephone box. The where telephone the, box, of course, in the, yeah. in, in the inciting incident and the church, where it becomes really, really important in book two. But nonetheless, the church has a... Has a, has a, has yeah. a so those four sort of... Land, you know, landmarks in my mind. Uh, I can now picture where they are and how long it takes to get between the two. And, and you know, the but do you think your picture is the same as my picture? No, I'm sure it isn't. <laughs> I'm sure it isn't. But I think that, you know, I'm, I, as I say, as I'm trying, uh, I should find some things to criticise, but I can't. Um, I think it's really, really good because you know we're not talking about somewhere that, you know, most of your audience when they read your books are not going to have been to Osset. I think it's fair. fair. That, that's, that's a fair point. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> you know it's not like you're, you're writing. Peter James is writing about Brighton. There's a very fair chance that a lot There's of not the many UK, people who haven't been to Brighton. <laughs> the, the UK readership are going to know 
that the lay of the land there. Or, um, you know, there's plenty of other... Rankings, or, uh, Edinburgh. Yeah, exactly, exactly yeah. Exactly. And, you know, the, um, you know they have a, there is a, an element of a shorthand you can use for them because people are familiar with it. Or even even internationally, they get, you know, anything set in London, you know, if it's, you know, Buckingham Palace, drop in that, or Big Ben, and then, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. in, they're yeah. there. But it's, it's a, it's a diff, more difficult job for, for someone to establish something, that, you know, frankly... I have never seen a photo of Osset in my you right. know, for yeah. any reason. You know, I can't think of any notorious murders or, you know, even Soham would be the, like the equivalent <laughs> in my neck of the woods when I grew up in Cambridge. I think we have to go would there the, now, though, don't would we? Would be the Osset, <laughs> Osset of Cambridgeshire in the sense that no one, you know, no one had heard of the place until those poor girls were killed by, uh, what was his name, Ian Bishop or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's that kind of thing. And so you've got a job to, to, to create that atmosphere that and reflect your, your hometown there. Well, in, in the, the third book, um, those locations get expanded on with a, mm. another one and then there'll be a, another one in the fourth book as well. So, it's, like you say, it's slowly fleshing everything out. Yeah, I love that. I really love that. So in terms of let's get to, to craft, and I mean, you've mentioned just how um, detailed the plan is for the first nine and... I know informally we've talked about quite a few more than that. Um, are you a planner then? I, I mean, I get the impression that you, you work to, you, you know, you, you, you map it out and then you stick to that. I'd like to stick to it, but I don't. <laughs> right, OK. Um, before, I always used to just um, get an idea for, for a story and then I'd, I'd just dive straight in and, and get writing. And that, that never really got anywhere. I'd always stall around 30,000, 40,000 words. And I wasn't able to... Yeah, get the breakthrough Where am I going the, next? Yeah, right. Mm. Um, so I then started doing what I used to do when I wrote screenplays, which was basically a beat sheet. Yeah. So Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, it's a 120-page script, so... Yeah, you need certain things to land so in like certain a, places. Sort of yes. a skeletal structure. Yeah, yeah. so you know yeah. that Act, act 1 is going to be the first 30 pages, Act 2 is going to be another 60, and Act 3 is going to be another 30. So I, I, I kind of put that structure in place with the, the book. Yeah. So it's going to be 300 pages, and then just work my way through how I was going to break that down, and then just do bullet points for each chapter. Yeah. So I do that... Um, but then I've noticed when I get a certain amount of pages in or amount of words in, the story's starting to take on its own. Yeah. And certain yeah. things have changed, and so I, I tend to go back in and scrap some things. Like, for example, I've literally just taken out 10,000 words of the new book, Cutting Shut, um, and I'm now just going back in and reworking it because what I'd written... I like that shouldn't happen for another twenty or thirty thousand words. So I'm um, move that out. Yeah. Go back in and restructure it a little bit. And because it's only a small bullet pointed outline, I'm not having to get rid of huge chunks of an outline. Mm. I can just quickly adapt it and change it, print it out, and then off we go again. Yeah. So I think that's proof then you don't have to be either a plotter or a pantser because you're somewhere between the two. 
But that's the beauty of writing. There's no rules. No, yeah. there aren't. You're right. There aren't. There are no rules except the rules that we establish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go on to what so, rules? I haven't read no, the rule I mean, book. <laughs> this is. I mean, this is an interesting debate, and you know, in the sense, we haven't really asked many of our other authors in terms of uh, this question, which is. So you get the manuscript to us, and we say yes, and then it's the process of getting to production. You know, editing mm-hmm. is involved. There's the proofing, and, and then there's obviously the, the cover design and all that stuff. But how have you found that process? I mean, you can be honest with us because, you know, we're all friends. But um, <laughs> in terms of having, you know, we try, I mean, our, our philosophy is to try and interfere as little as possible. You know, just and just steer people away from any potential problems. Yeah, yeah if you wanted to, kittens on the front, we would have said no. Yeah, <laughs> but to retain essentially the you know the thing that we fell in love with, we don't want to tear up. Mm-hmm. Other publishers might be a little bit more didactic than that, but we're not like that. But how have you found that process of an editor going into your work and suggesting changes? Because I know that there were things that you know she uncovered perhaps or, or yep. made suggestions that, that that were perhaps difficult to sort of read the first time you got them is that fair yeah no that's very fair i i honestly thought i was going to be really precious over it i thought no that, that, that's it that, those are my words my words you can't touch my words <laughs> yeah. um but I, I i honestly hand on heart really enjoyed the editing process um sue the, the comments from sue were very constructive. They cut through a lot of the shortcuts I was taking, mm. um, and she pulled me up on several aspects that, um, while I don't think would have lessened somebody's enjoyment of reading the book, yeah. from a craft point of view, definitely needed changing and implementing. And it was hard to do. From a, I need to learn a new way of writing this mm. point of view, not a hard as in, I don't want to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I tried to be as open um, to the, the whole experience as, mm. as possible. Mm. Um, and I, I learned, a, a, you know, a heck of a lot on... The, you know, my, the main problem I was having was point of view. yeah. I'd have a section in a chapter which started off from character A point of view, yeah. then suddenly you're looking from character B's point of view, then you're back to A, and then all of a sudden another character's appeared for a second and you're in their head, mm-hmm. then you're back to character B. And I could see it was very confusing. Older books, um, I've been reading a lot of Morse lately. Yeah, yeah, and, Colin and Dexter, yeah. He jumps all over the place. Right. Um... So if it's good enough for Colin Dexter, why isn't it good enough for me? But, but modern audiences, modern readers... Yes, they struggle with it. That's yes. for sure. That's um, for sure. So implementing that, and I now have above my desk... Um, because when I write, I write on a... Well, I've just got a new one now, a, a small laptop. Yeah. Because I like, it feels like a typewriter. Mm. Mm. If I could write on a typewriter... And send you the actual <laughs> printed the, the, out the, the, the typed pages. That'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> Not for us, it would. <laughs> yeah, that might be a struggle to put into vellum. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I write on a on a on a laptop. But yeah. I edit on the PC 
because it's a different mindset. Um, so I can get straight into the, the actual editing section. Um, and I've actually forgotten what the question was. Uh, about but you, you had something on your... Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. above my... Um, on my, my monitor, yeah. I've now got three big post-it notes that say, point of view, <laughs> one at a time, do what Sue says. Do what Sue says... Can I tell her that? Because she will love get, that. We're yeah. going to get some T-shirts. <laughs> we'll do what Sue no, says. It's funny, yeah. Sue, Sue I, I was corresponding with we, Sue we the other day. Sue. And she did say, she said, when's Jonathan Peters' next book coming? Because you promised it me. <laughs> she, she loves working with you, which is great. Um, now, we want to give her a full credit. Sue... Davison. Sue Davison is... Uh, she went to the same university as us as well, oh, apparently. Oh, she? God, yeah. the extra mafia. We really are a mafia nowadays. <laughs> um, it's extraordinary. Uh yeah, I mean, she, she's, she's fantastic. All of our editors are, um, you know, I hasten to say. But, uh, yeah, I think it's been really interesting. Because I, I, it's funny, when, when you've um, fed back, you know, the, you had quite a lot of work to do and the, it, it sort of caught you on, sort of off guard, really, a little bit, you know, when you got that feedback. Mm. I went back to my own work and went, oh, God, yeah, I'm, I'm head-hopping here, <laughs> big time. And actually, there was a one, one at that point. We, we had a book which we're going to publish, where the head hopping was quite stark as well, because the way that it had come through to me to read, um, sort of formatting wise, there was absolutely no way of telling that you were suddenly switching heads. Mm. And it's it, and you know we're going to retain it if we can if you change the because it was going from third person to first person within a chapter, but without. Um, changing the the font or the the way it's it presented, it makes it very very yeah, difficult need, to realize. You, 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 what happens is that you then read the next two sentences, going, "God, what's going on here? Why is it suddenly talking about I such and such? You know, rather than we or or, yeah. or they did this, and you know, um, this this doesn't work. And you know, you having to go back and reread that bit. Like you, you, sometimes, you know, when you're watching a, a, a program, something distracts you for 10 seconds in all the time Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> I did this yesterday I was going back 10 seconds just, what did they yeah. just say because if you're not listening on um, headphones with a phone you know you get some mumbled dialogue by a droid or something you just don't you don't don't yeah. hear it and you have to go back but it's the same nothing's worse I think than if a book makes you have to do that when is you're it, reading it it pulls you out of the story yeah definitely yeah, yeah. and obviously soon picked up on that with mine and, yeah. and it definitely needed changing so. yeah no it's 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 brilliant I'm so i'm glad you enjoyed that process and we've really like you know enjoyed the whole process of bringing this book to to life as we do with all of ours but you know it it, it feels i think you know every time we bring a fresh author to, to market i don't know how you feel about this rebecca but i feel a really big sense of responsibility oh eh? responsibility is huge yeah it is it's it huge, is huge. I, I get my, my tummy flutters when we uh, open the box pride <laughs> one of your co-colleagues at Hobeck, one of our fellow authors uh, one of your fellow authors um ab morgan calls us the book parents and oh, that's yeah, <laughs> definitely and actually yep. that is that is it you know that sums up very well what it's like for us this that's our side of the bargain in the sense of you know we're curators and partners in bringing your vision to to the public so well again with you know without blowing smoke no. um again looking at the book it, yeah here you, it is you um, can you can't see it but you, know. <laughs> you can tell that you know you care as book parents um <laughs> You know, the, the, you know, you've, you've chosen great cover designers. You've oh. chosen great editors. Yeah, no it's thing. one of my. It, I think that is one of my favourite of our covers, actually. 
I think because I'm, 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 I am an obsessive about the Mark IV red telephone box. Um, and, uh, you know, there were rumours about... Because I used to... On my t- this is going back to my tour guiding. I used to talk... This is a really useless piece of information I used to impart when I, I was stuck in a traffic jam. Um, and the Cambridge University Library was designed by Sir Giles Gilbert Scott, um, who was the famous son of George, who designed St Pancras. Oh, we talked about St Pancras in the car on the way. We did, we did. But I used to think it was a part of the body. Now, the University Library <laughs> in Cambridge is is a brick version of a brutalist building in 30s terms. You know, it, it would make a really good Nazi headquarters. I love that sort of architecture, yeah. though. Um, it's, it's... There we go, right. That's a... The, the phone box has actually lost it. Oh, OK, the one that inspired the, the incident. We've yeah. got it up on a hillside here. And that's <laughs> what is in the book. Um... <laughs> took some getting a, a decent image and that, that worked on, on a hillside but I think we found it um, but the rumour was and I can't figure out, I can't get to the truth of it did Sir G- Giles Gilbert Scott design the Mark IV telephone box or was it some bloke in, in the general post office? It's probably because, some bloke I'd say some bloke. <laughs> because it, it, you know the, the funny thing is that you know the, the University Library Tower and that are very similar looking in ah. terms of the way, it, yeah and Maybe um, you got the idea off some bloke. See, see, if you go into the university, like you used to have, um, and I only went in a couple of times. You know, I never got a reader ticket, which would be amazing because it's a copyright library. And indeed, this book will be going there not in not too distant future, which is just amazing when you think about it. it's going to be the British Library. Yeah. <laughs> it will be, um, and in the Cambridge University Library, and the Bodleian, and the Bodleian, and, and yeah, we know because we get an email saying you need to send we, six books to one, these libraries. One, it's one of the things of a publisher's life. We always forget we need to keep six copies back to send them to the copyright libraries because eventually the request comes in once you give it an ISBN. And do you know what? Yeah. The ladies in our local post office thinks it's a scam. She thinks there's a scammer calling themselves the British Library and getting free books. <laughs> Could be, could be, but nonetheless, nonetheless, the night, the, you know, there was a red telephone box inside the the lobby of Cambridge University Library, which led a lot of people to think that there was a connection that Sir Giles had designed that. I, I need to check it. I haven't got time now. Get my phone out and have a look. But nonetheless, it is. I I think that red telephone boxes are up there in the top ten pieces of British design ever, in my view. Yeah. I don't know. If well, they're internationally recognisable, aren't they? People yeah. recognise them. It's iconic, yeah. Yeah. They are iconic. And it's nice to see that a lot of communities have put books in them. So, that, you know, it's like a little lending library or defibrillators. Oh, I've seen or... that, yeah. Well, that, that's where the original idea came from. Yeah. Um, it was a, originally, it was a, a horror story. And it was a, a set in modern day. And it was a book, it was a, um, a phone box library. And. The, the character of Louise then, who was a book blogger, came along, found a um, phone box library, took a book out, but the, the books in the library stole the souls of the people who read. But it didn't work as a horror story, so I had to think how I was going to change it. That's and amazing. It became Dirty Little Secret. I'm not going to go and get one of those books, though. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a great... You've got to tell that story as well. You've got to get... That's got to... Well, we'll you know... It could be a, no, a short story, couldn't it? Well, we're going to... You know, the Hobeck cat has been adapted. Um, as you've seen, you know, it, the Hobeck Hobcast logo that's on yeah. our microphones here is different to the one that's on the book, and we've got an academic version with a mortarboard. But I can't wait to have one with fangs. 
<laughs> that becomes our horror imprint. Nice. <laughs> That's my plan. You'll uh, love my, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we're, we must be fast approaching random question yeah. time. Do you well, think? I kind of have two. One is semi-random in that it's not to do with books and one is very random. So shall I ask a semi-random first? Okay, okay. I'm, I'm going to give it the build-up, okay? Rebecca's semi-random <laughs> question. So <laughs> this morning I did parkrun with two of my boys and I said, we're meeting Jonathan Peace today, author of Dirty Little Secret, and I need a question for him. And I said, and they said, what, what do you know about him? I said, well, I know he likes Star Wars. So they got quite excited. They said, well, we have a question for him then. Cause we, it's a good one. Because the eldest and the youngest, they cannot agree on this and they fight over it. And they, and they were even arguing again in the car about it. So they wanted me to ask you what you think. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've got to try and remember it because I'm not a Star Wars fan. <laughs> Can you rank the sequel trilogy? Yes. So we're talking... Um, Episode 7, r- 8 uh, and 9. The, the Jedi Goes Rogue? No? No. <laughs> For- Force, Force Awakens. Awakens. Force Awakens, that's one. Uh, the Jedi goes rogue. The Last Jedi. The Last Jedi. And the rise of. The rise of the rogue. Skywalker. Skywalker. <laughs> they want. They want to know what order would you put them in terms of quality of film. This is a heated debate. <laughs> yeah, I know it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, you know, have you? <laughs> okay, because they've asked the question, I'll I'll do it. Yeah, I'm not it. a fan of the sequels. Oh, no, that, that's, really not that's an interesting answer in itself, isn't it? Because mm. they're not either. I mean, I think we'll debate this in a moment. Toby, yeah. I think Toby did say, "Well, they're all rubbish." Uh, yeah, <laughs> for, for nostalgia reason reasons, Force Awakens. Yes, because it it's, it hits all the same marks as A New Hope. Yep. Um, so that one has the top. Yep, definitely. Is that what Luke thought? Yeah, well, they all agree that it's just a question of which one is the worst out of the eight and nine. Oh, okay. That's what the debate is. They, I mean, they everyone, disagree everyone on accepts that. that seven was. I mean, I went to see that about ten times, and you know, in the cinema because I just blubbed like a baby because it took me back to being a seven year old. Yep, exactly. And yep. and and also, uh, spoiler alert, you know, the bit where you know, evil son kills heroic dad, um, who's a rubbish dad, but nonetheless. Uh, got me every time because mm-hmm. I was having loads and loads of problems with my six, then 16 year old son who'd gone a bit rogue and a bit difficult and we were at loggerheads and that just hit me every time I watched it I felt that same thing and by the way he was called Ben as well <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah so, okay, now, it's, so now it's a b- debate the, as to which, which one's the two, worst which is third so the second one it's, it's literally the order that came out so the best one is Force Awakens. The, the next best one is The Last Jedi, because I really like the idea of the um, uh, the retreating siege um, when the, the the ships are escaping the planet and they're being pursued. Yeah, I would have personally just stuck with that as the through storyline. Mm. Just had that. So that, that's the second one. And then the worst one is the rise of Skywalker because she's not a Skywalker. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's conceptually just—it's so flawed. And, and just all of a sudden, everybody's hearing the Emperor speaking. If you'd have seeded that at the very beginning in Force Awakens, yeah, that would have been a good, a good run through. Oh, going back as well to the Last Jedi, just having Luke not be Luke Skywalker. Again, yeah. But then we got to see him be Luke Skywalker in The Mandalorian. 
spoiler alert, if you've not seen it. <laughs> it's brilliant. When, when he she turned, hasn't seen it yet. When he turns up, mm. that, that was just fantastic. So. Well, it was kind of a redemption for the character, wasn't it? It was an opportunity for Mark Hamill to put things a little bit straighter because he's obviously very unhappy with the way that Ryan yeah. Johnson wrote that scene where she has presented the lightsaber at the end of The Force Awakens and he just tosses it over just his shoulder. Away. Yeah, which is ridiculous. And from that point on, the film just went off tangent. And there were, I mean, there were all sorts of things wrong with it. But, you know, it's a moral answer in terms of, if you, you know, mishandling a story arc. Yeah. Um, totally. And, you know, the, the, then having to retrofit the Emperor into the episode nine to just bring the thing, just get it done. Um, but I, I love, I hope there's an Ian McDiarmid in the new Obi-Wan series as the Emperor. Is he related to Val? No. <laughs> actually, he might be. He might be. He's, they are, he's, he's Scottish too, isn't he? Um, uh, I, this is a story. So I was in the Barsh at Bush House when the World Service was based there in the, you know, in the Aldwych in the Strand kind mm. of area. Bottom of the Kingsway. And um, I'm in the bar. It's downstairs. It's in the basement. It's an amazing bar. It was at that time. It was just full of smoke <laughs> because the U- Ukrainians and the Russian service were tabbing away. Um, and it had just this most amazing atmosphere. And there's a bloke. I'm ordering a pint of directors, and he's at the end of the bar. It's a small bar, you know, not much bigger than these three tables put together, I should think. And I'm going, God, he's familiar. I don't I know that face from somewhere. And he's sort of going, yeah, I require a, bof- a, a pint of directors. And Is it Dalek? No, it was Ian <laughs> McDiarmid, the emperor. And I didn't realise until I was almost back at Hoban Station, it dropped, oh, my oh. God, I've, I've been right next to the emperor. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't, didn't realise. And I, I idolised that guy because he has the best evil voice ever in my in my opinion you know he absolutely whenever he goes evil he always enunciates every syllable evil people yeah, do he drops a, drops a tone yes he drops a tone <laughs> ah yes you know that, that bit when he, yes and then when he goes really evil he's a skywalker <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm afraid you're a rebel friends you know that's <laughs> that kind of uh, he's just brilliant at it yeah not so good as a straightforward diplomatic politician in the first Phantom Menace, but, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, now we've really jumped the shark <laughs> we've, here. We've, 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 we've lost you. We've lost you. <laughs> we've, we've nerded out for uh, the 80s. You have. And the 70s. Yes. Uh, the, the real random question, I should ask. Oh, yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> I will do it as the emperor. Oh, gosh. Rebecca's. <laughs> random question. Okay, this also came from my children in the car this morning. They want to know... <laughs> If you could convert, if you had a cellar in your house, I don't know whether you have a cellar or not. If you could convert your cellar, what to what purpose would you put it? That's a good one. Because they said you write you write books about people being killed and, and you know people put bodies in the cellar, don't they? Yeah. This is, but you're not allowed to do that. They said you're not allowed to put oh, bodies okay. in it. But <laughs> let me think then. <laughs> um, no, it, it would definitely be um, a gaming room. Yes. We've always wanted a gaming room. Both me and my wife are, are big tabletop gaming fans. Mm-hmm. Um, Is it like table tennis? No, no, no. no. There's Dungeons and Dragons and, <laughs> oh, and, oh, and yeah. Warhammer and, 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 and fancy board games and, you know, like I say, Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. So there'd be a really nice um, medieval 
style table mm. in the middle with um, velvet in the in the bottom, cup holders and oh, yeah. a little painting station to one side and oh. yes, because you, you paint everywhere. figures, don't you? And, and, yeah, you know. we, we we both paint. Oh, do soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I used to run a business in my school. I had oh, a mate God, called Brian. <laughs> Sorry, another anecdote. But I had a, a mate called Brian. Brian Head. Who was a genius? As a, you know, under the you know, he had this big magnifying glass, and he could paint the the orcs and the whatever. You know, windlit figures were a big thing for our generation. You know, Dungeons and Dragons. And I used to pay him. I used to buy them from the local shop in um, in Cambridge, and he would paint them. And I'd pay him, for argument's sake, fifty p. And I flogged these for a fiver. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and he was my. He never realised that I was really fleecing him. Bless him. <laughs> Brian, I owe you an apology, but I made an absolute fortune out of his talents. I think That's you good. need to find That's Brian good. and fess up. I Yeah, we did. We, we agreed to meet for a pint in, in um, Liverpool Street about 15 years ago, and I, I, I pulled out the last minute, and I haven't seen him since, but he was one of the nicest guys. He, I used to exploit him in many, many ways, but <laughs> <laughs> the other thing was that... Um, Whenever well, I, I was very fortunate, and you talk about games room, I would have a, a model railway set up somewhere and right. in my cellar, and be spending the rest of my life building landscapes. Even though I'm artistically useless, I would, I'll, I'll make your landscapes for right. you. Right? No, you can. Paint, <laughs> I'll, I'll do the papier mâché or whatever you know, the plaster Paris kind of chicken wire stuff, and you you can paint it authentically. But I've always wanted a really good railway layout. And I had one when I was a kid, which my dad designed a thing. We had a table tennis table and a railway thing, which we could drop down from the ceiling onto the table tennis table whenever I wanted to play. Nice. You know, yeah. but it needed three of us to do it. So my dad, myself, and then Brian Head would have to be the... It, oh, right, you want the railway to come down, do you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was on pulleys that used to come down from the ceiling, and, and uh, it was amazing. Uh, you go, all oh, right, OK, I'll come over. You know, poor Fantastic. bloke. Yeah, yeah. yeah you need, everyone, everyone needs a Brian Head. I think you need to get in touch with him. I do, I do, I do. You're right. I owe him one. Poor I Brian. owe him a lot. I'm, you know, interest, you know, if it was inflation-related, I'd probably owe him a grand or something. Um, but, yeah, one of my many little um, economic scams I ran at school. There are a few. <laughs> there are a few. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, um, we've done the random questions, and uh, I think that is where we normally bring things to the I think so. So, uh, Jonathan, I hope it's been... Uh, a pleasurable experience it's been great to meet you and to talk to you and uh, we can't recommend Dirty Little Secret enough and this forthcoming series from Sorrow's Hold it really is we're so proud to be bringing it to the world and uh, congratulations on your publication week and have a good day on the publication day thank you very much cheers I think we came away again whenever we do one of these interviews with great energy and great you know you know we love Jonathan's dedication to what he's going to do with the series he's got a really really cogent and and big plan for where he's going to take Louise's career through the years. One, you know, it'll be 1989 when we get the third book. And uh, I really can't wait to read that. And we've, um, uh, because there's a blog tour for Jonathan's mm. first book, um, and I've seen on Twitter quite a few people, the bloggers talking amongst themselves saying, well, I'm 25% in, I'm 40% in, I love it so far. You know? yeah, yeah. Really, really nice, positive comments. Yeah, and, and, you know, as we've discussed in that interview, not a, I mean, you know, each book is a, is a continuation, obviously, of the series and the, the lives of the key characters, but within it, big issues are dealt with, and I think he does a really good job. He does. Uh, uh, and, yeah, he is a terrific talent, and we're, delighted to have signed him and we're 
we would urge you on Tuesday when it comes out to get Dirty Little Secret from Amazon or indeed from our website. And if you want to sign a copy, and we got him to sign a few. We did. Uh, please go to our website, www.hobeck.net. Now, we ought to get to our second contribution from a Hobeck author. We should, yes. Harry Fisher. Fisher. Yeah. Now, he's brought his third Hobeck book to us, and it was published, <laughs> what, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it is called... Yes, I killed her. And it's a how done it as opposed to a who done it. We know who did it, but how are they going to get away with it? And he actually talks about that in his little snippet. Yeah, it's um, it's a great book. So let's hear from Harry Fisher. Maybe I should start off by saying a little bit about my um, third book, Yes, I Killed Her. I'd always been intrigued by the concept of the perfect murder, where the killer... Um, plans it all out and thinks he's going to get away with it. I think in the olden days that was easier, more straightforward to achieve. And if you think about, you know, Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie, the amount of technology that was available to um, Monsieur Poirot was limited and a lot of it was down to his intelligence and his powers of observation. But these days... We are observed everywhere we go. All you have to do is think about, you know, CCTV being on practically every building, both uh, commercial and domestic. There's rapid advances in technology and forensics, both uh, digital um, and biological. And then there's our electronic footprint. Um, Everywhere we go, our phone is tracked or our car is tracked or... Um, you know, we use a bank card or something like that. So it's a bit more complicated now than just dumping a body in the boot of a car. Um, Because if you drive your car off, then your car is going to be tracked. Um, So that's where the idea came from. And I was fascinated by the concept of trying to create this perfect murder while um, circumventing all these uh, technological possibilities for you know catching the murderer. Uh, you've asked how did I come up with the idea for a modern how done it? Well I'm not sure I did um, mainly because I'd never heard of the term how done it. The first time I heard it was from Rebecca. Um, she mentioned it to me um, on an email but it was April 1st so I thought she was winding me up. Um, Turns out she wasn't winding me up. There is such a thing as a how done it, but I didn't know that. By that time, the, the book was finished, so it looks like I wrote a how done it by accident, I guess. Did I have to do a lot of research for this book compared to previous books? This is my third book, or this was my third book, so I guess I already had compiled a stack of knowledge that I was able to rely upon. But it was the forensics, both digital and biological, that I had to concentrate on for this one. I was helped immensely by one of my Hobeck colleagues, chap called Brian Price. He's written a factual book, very, very readable, called Crime Writing, How to Write the Science. Um, And I use that a lot, so thanks very much, Brian. You were a tremendous help. One of my friends, Chris, he reads my books for technological bloopers. So he gets an early draft that has all the technological concepts in there that I am using. 
And uh, he looked at a particular part and said, you know, what you're trying to achieve here doesn't actually work. Um, that is not how that um, particular thing works. Um, so you can't do that. Well, technically he's right. It didn't work like that. But I needed it to because it was a key part of the story. So I guess I just invented how this item um, could operate um, if it was taken to its ultimate conclusion. Uh, I'm trying here not to give away any spoilers, um, but I just worked it out what I wanted uh, this item to do and then I made the rest up, I'm afraid. Um, and I did put a, a little disclaimer at the back of the book to say, I know it doesn't work like that. Please don't uh, pick me up for it. Um, it's fiction, after all. One thing I would say about research is if uh, anyone ever looks at my Google search history, I'm probably in a heap of bother. Yeah, as you say, I had a, a launch party in Aberdeen uh, on the 20th of uh, May. How did it go? Um fabulous. It was really, really good. We had nearly 70 uh, people there. Um, an awful lot of people that I knew and some people I'd never met before, which was fabulous. Next week in Edinburgh, there's another one. Again, I'm expecting 60-odd people. Um, and it's a tremendous opportunity to thank lots of people who've bought my books. And if I sell a few, tremendous, but really that's not what it's about. It's about spreading the word, saying thank you, and getting the opportunity just to sit and chat in a fairly relaxed environment, or relaxed after I've uh, finished strutting my funky stuff, and and then just enjoy the evening. So yeah, it, it, last week was great, and I'm expecting this week to be really good as well. What's next for Mel and her team? Um, well, they do say that authors should try to do something different with every book. Um, I don't fancy the idea of trotting out the same thing time after time because I think it was it's formulaic and I think people would get fed up and I think I would also get fed up trying to invent a new twist on the same story with the same characters, well the same good guys anyway. My first book was about fraud, um, my second book was about serial crimes, this third book as you know is about the perfect murder. So the fourth book is going to be different and I'm thinking, I have a rough plan in my head, but that's all, about a split timeline. So my books are set in Leith, which is part of Edinburgh, um, and I'm planning a split timeline between the late 1960s in Leith um, and the present time. So a crime that occurs in the 60s um, when lots and lots of Leith was being knocked down and reconstructed Therefore, lots of really good place, places to hide a body. Um, the present time, yeah, Mel and her team are going to have to somehow uh, figure out what went on. And I won't say any more about it just now, but they are under time pressure caused by um, a third activity uh, that's happening. Ah, random question. What is my favourite work of art? Um, I have to say I'm not into art in general. Um, a lot of it leaves me cold or I don't see the point. Um, we went to a gallery of modern art on holiday once in Montreal. I saw pictures which are basically three panels of cream, different, slightly different shades of cream, and a great big huge long story next to it about what it represented. Uh, I'm sorry, but I just don't see the point in that. So I like stuff with detail, um, old photographs, maps, 
images with lots in it that you can um, get your head round, try and figure out. I, uh, I've always liked uh, the Dutch um, artist chap called uh, M.C. Escher. I think it's Escher. And um, he writes a lot... Uh, sorry, he, he creates a lot of um, images that are puzzles and your brain has to figure them all out. So I do like stuff like that. If I was pushed to pick a, a favourite piece uh, in our house, for example, and um, when my wife and I were married, she bought me a historic print um, of Edinburgh, and it's a map of Edinburgh's new town, hand-drawn. Um, it's um, incredible detail, as you can imagine, um, and as some of the streets on there are no longer um, there because they've been knocked down um, or, you know, just overtaken by events. Um, it's it's a fascinating uh, piece to look at and it's the sort of thing that you can look at over and over, um, you know, and always find something new. So I guess that's that's me as far as art is concerned. How do you think he dealt with the random question? Really well. And I'm actually, um, I'm not surprised he chose that particular piece of artwork as his favourite. Mm. Because um, I also love that artist. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm an artist myself. So there's lots and lots of artists that I admire. But, I, you know, I, I, it's a very Harry choice, I think. And I, I can see, strangely, that the influence of that type of art and the way he writes. He yeah. writes like Escher. If Escher was a writer, he writes the same way. Right. Yeah. You I know, see. I thought you puzzle. were talking about Etch-A-Sketch. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Because, I mean, Escher was famous for his sketches, right? Well, he, yeah, he, he, he drew, but he drew these sort of optical puzzles. Yes. He? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Harry writes in puzzles. He does. He does. Yeah. And yeah. there's an optical element to them, a visual element. To Absolutely. Them. So when he when he chose Escher, I thought, I'm not surprised. <laughs> no, no, fair enough, fair enough. I, I mean, I'm I'm not going to enter this debate as my favourite, but okay, I will, I will, I would say that I would make a really big effort to see any Vermeer. Oh, that's mine. You can't have the same. Uh, well, I I look, I had a very weird. <laughs> I had a job, um, as I think I've mentioned. I worked for the, for for Her Majesty. Uh, on the second year of the opening of Buckingham Palace. Now, it's become a regular thing, but initially in the 90s, after the Windsor fire, it was open to raise money to build, rebuild Windsor. And the idea was that, you know, they would do it for five years and then things would return to normal. But, of course, you know, they haven't, and they've kept this summer opening thing going. But very often I was um, positioned as a warden in the Queen's Gallery. Um, and mm. so it was... Uh, a, a you know, it's a, it's she has a fabulous collection of art, and within the Queen's Gallery, which is currently, I think, being redeveloped because it's been leaking and threatening the Rembrandt. Uh, but there was a Vermeer. Is it open to the public? No. Well, there is a there is a gallery next to Buckingham Palace, which is open to the public all year round. Are you telling me the Vermeer is not available for public viewing? Uh, no. That's terrible. Well, no, it is It is during the... Well, it was at that time during the public opening of Buckingham Palace. And so I used to... Guess what? I broke the rules because we were not supposed to really speak Oh, is this to when you went to the toilet? <laughs> yeah, but we won't, <laughs> we won't talk about... You know, I used an exclusive toilet in Buckingham Palace. But the... Um, the, the, the rule was, you know, wardens were there to be, you know, to watch 
the public and make sure they didn't cross the ropes or go anywhere near the arts and stuff like that or whatever. But I couldn't help it. I mean, I couldn't stand there still. I mean, I just had to sort of engage in conversation with people. And they really appreciated it because there's nothing worse than someone, you know, as I was with my epaulets on my shoulder and, you know, um, some sort of zookeeper's hat thing mm. um, stood there, you know, glowering at people it's rather off-putting um so i used to say uh you know i used to just catch someone's eye and they go oh, what should i be looking for and i would say well this is a very fine painting it's probably worth uh excessive of 20 million and it's by vermeer oh i love vermeer now i mean i i i've got many favorite artists so vermeer is one of them and i saw um Vermeer. I've seen a couple of Vermeers in the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, one was the Milkmaid, mm, which is the, the probably his most famous, is it? And the girl with the pearl, girl with the pearl earring, of course. Yeah. So, and it was just I couldn't stop staring at it, partly because of the blue paint, mm. the, the particular yeah, the blue paint he used, yeah. and the milk, the the way the mm. flow of the milk. It, he was a genius. Yeah. The the the, the vibrancy of the colours. And the perspectives. I mean, I think it was called Girl with a Madrigal or something. Uh, it was the one, again, you know, usual thing. Window, two walls, table behind, couple of figures, kind of thing. But the light was amazing. That's, that's what he did so well. He he had a light source. So the colours, the light and the simplicity of the image as well. Mm. And it was just ordinary people, but they looked extraordinary by the way he painted them. And it was a tiny, tiny piece of art compared to the Rembrandt well the Rembrandt was quite small it was one of his self portraits which we you know we've all seen Rembrandt yeah. so he did a lot of them he was obviously a bit of a narcissist um and then you get these gigantic uh, portraits of Charles I and his family by Van Dyck who was the court painter at that time mm. and they're <laughs> they're sort of floor to ceiling enormous you know if if you it would be like taking a football goal and then Tipping it onto its onto its uh, you know end and then it would be the, that sort of size. Yeah, right. huge, huge canvases. I mean, you know, Charles I didn't hold back mm-hmm. with his propaganda. Uh, but it, yeah, it was an it was an amazing privilege to, uh, to 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 stand there amongst this wonderful art and then occasionally sort of just pass on a bit of information. But I'm you know, quite jealous actually. Well, you know what people. I mean, you know, you know, I wasn't being a Brian Sewell or something like that. You, know. <laughs> you, know, you should form. have put the accent on you. Yes. That sort of thing. Uh, yes, it's useful light. Uh, I wouldn't have done that, no. But I mean, the the one that my the one piece of work that that was in within that um, sweep of rooms that people went through was my favourite was the the table of the great commanders, which is um, it's not very big. It's, it's basically a coffee table, but it's got the twelve you know twelve figures from antiquity, great military leaders on it, and I studied that at university, so. I'd give people this spiel about, you know, who Vespasian was or Trajan or obviously Caesar and um, Alexander and all that. They loved it. I and bet then, they did, yeah. And this was, this was in the uh, in the Queen's dining room. And um, not the banqueting hall, but the sort of one where she would have sort of 20 people for dinner kind of. Did kind she of ever thing. come in and have her beans on toast for lunch while you were there? Uh, no, no. She was in Balmoral during this period. <laughs> but I did, did me, I did drop a clock, a very expensive clock, when Prince Philip put his head around the... the just before he went to Balmoral, he was very dismissive of me, but I think I've told that story. But um, everyone used to comment about how low the table was because <laughs> it was creative of Queen Victoria and she was very petite. Yeah. Um, and when you get a very big table, I mean, you know, Vladimir Putin's sort of scale type, you know, table that seats 
25, 26 people or something like that. Mm. They do tend to look a little lower than you, your, your average dining table. And um, so I used to make up all sorts of stories about why it was that short. You <laughs> of know. course, I can imagine. Uh, the Queen, Queen Victoria didn't want to be sort of, you know, reaching for a food and all this sort of thing. Um, and then there was, I was told by one of the footmen that, that, that Prince Philip has this, that, or had, I should say, I'm so, sorry, you know, catch up with the news, um, had a particular problem with the way that royal protocol worked, which was that he was always the last to get served. So the Queen got the food first. And if she didn't hang about and wanted to eat it pretty much straight away, he would only get it and it would be colder than the rest. And he'd always moan about it. I being would cold. moan about that. Yeah, he'd moan about the. In fact, it was cold. And also, when the, 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 the etiquette was that if Her Majesty had finished eating, everyone had their plates cleared for the next course. So. Well, if it, so he hadn't finished? Yeah, he, no. barely, he barely got a mouthful. I would not know. I wouldn't tolerate that. I'm sorry. She may be the Queen, but no. <laughs> so that was, that was his beef. Um, Good for him. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That. I mean, you hear this stuff, but I mean, uh, that's the story that was told to me. So um, I rather like that one. I really do. Well, that's not happening at our dining table. No. <laughs> so it's time to just sort of, before we round up and, and, and finish, um, we ought to think about who we're seeing next week. We ought to think about who we're seeing next week. And I knew you were going to ask me. And as usual, I have completely forgotten. So we have a spreadsheet. And in a spreadsheet, I record. Can you access it while we're talking? And I can It's keep... on the laptop. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> we're so amateur. This is pathetic. Um, all right. Yeah, so, but it has uh, an element uh, uh, of surprise. Yeah, but do we have any clues as to who it might be? I or? actually, I have no recollection whatsoever. Okay, another mystery guest next week. <laughs> Marvelous. I look forward to meeting our mystery guest next week. <laughs> uh, we we do know that, uh, that in a couple of weeks' time, or maybe three weeks' time, we'll be in Southwold for slaughter in Southwold. So we'll bring you a special program from there. And yeah, we should get Lynn to say a few words, shouldn't we? So. We will, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we shall be uh, going to Harrogate, as we've mentioned before. So there's all that to go. We've got the the Queen's Jubilee coming up at the weekend, haven't we? So that'll be a it's Queen Jubilee special with a mystery guest. That is our guest, the Queen. Yeah, right. We're going to ask her what she reads. Yeah, what is your random question to Her Majesty? <laughs> um, yeah, that could be that could be very interesting. Um, right. But um, we've got a busy week ahead, as usual. We do. Your Mad May is nearly over. Yeah, I'd say another week of madness, and then right. it'll start to ease yeah, a little. And you need some time off. You need to just recover, because it's been bonkers, the amount you've worked over the last few months. Um, I am working on a number of different projects, but we've got some progress on our search for rights advocate uh, for the for the business, yeah. so uh, we'll we'll update you when we know more. But that's uh, that's in train. So I'm going to the dentist. How wonderful! And um, I, I I want to you know bring the occasion down, of course. By um, I'm going to a, a funeral for um, the mother of a, one of my dearest friends. So um, that will be me midweek, meeting up with a lot of my old um, friends from Cambridge. But a very sad occasion, and. Um, that that's going to dominate the week, I think. For yeah, me. and we we got we we'll probably play a little bit of tennis. And, and we got half term, so the kids term, are under so their feet. Yeah, although you say that, it's, you wouldn't know they're in the building at the moment. No, no. Well, I mean, the two of them are 
got exams the know, other side so of it. So the, the old uh, Luke did say to me, so what we, he asked me, what are we doing at half term? And I said, oh, I haven't got any plans yet. And he said, is it okay if I just revise? Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, look, it's been wonderful to have your company. Thank you for joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. And as ever, we would encourage you, please, to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts from to the Hobcast Book Show. We've got some great guests coming up. Uh, we will have Andrew Child. Yeah, that won't be too long, actually. No, that's right. Lee Child, uh, you know, has passed on the baton of Reacher to Andrew, and that's a brilliant interview we took. Uh, we did it at uh, Crime Fest, and um, I know that we'll be gathering some interviews. I guess at the end of June, when we're at the when I'm at the CWA Daggers uh, dinner, I'll pick one or two things up to to spice up that particular edition. So there's lots lots to come on the Hobcast Book Show, and don't forget, of course, we've got seventy two former episodes there with all manner of fantastic content the other thing i was going to mention is that i just took a receipt of one of our former guests latest book and that's matt bird who has edited for us as well he wrote the secrets of story and now he's got the secrets of character i've just started reading it, it is superb oh i'm not surprised he really yeah. he knows his stuff and I, I can't recommend it highly enough just based on the first 10 pages that I've read is superb. So congratulations on him getting that out. And uh, that came out this week and we'll get him on the program. Yeah. I think probably in the autumn, but can't wait to speak to him again because he really was inspired. But uh, that's it for this week and the Hopcast book show. I've been Adrian Hobart. He has. And I've been Rebecca Collins. And we would like to wish you a wonderful, creative and uh, well, celebratory week as we celebrate. Celebrate. Yeah, the Jubilee. Oh, that. We'll see you at the other side of the Jubilee next week with our mystery guest. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.